Man, I was crying after that last one, man. I mean, not crying, I'm a man. I, I sweat from my eyes. I don't cry. Uh, those are just my eyeballs getting a workout is what that is. You're all a little blurry right now. I'm going to have to defrost my glasses after that last line there. What a wonderful, wonderful, worshipful, awesome, just powerful message, man. There, there's something to, I am not a singer. I am not somebody, I mean, maybe in the car if the right song comes on, I'll just belt it out. But there is something that comes over you when you hear truths like that. And I know, I remember coming into church. I remember coming to a church as, as someone who didn't believe in God and someone who I, I think honestly could say hated God, was definitely against the things of God, but just had a lot of questions. I remember coming into church and experiencing this just weird phenomenon as I would see these people just enthralled with the music in a way that, like, not when that beat drops and you're in the club and you're like, that's my jam, come on, girls. Like, not that kind of, I mean, that's the one thing, right? But, but I, I remember seeing and experiencing, I thought it was so surreal to watch these adults and to watch these young adults and to watch these kids and just to be there as kind of this bystander who didn't believe what they believed, but I was convinced that they believed it. And I was convinced they believed it by the way they would just, I would call it, especially then, just ugly worship, right? Just ugly. Like, I was like, man, you can't sway, you can't clap, right? Just, just pick one or the other, either sing or clap, but you can't do both, right? But they didn't care. They weren't there for show. There was something about the truth that engaged their heart, that had changed their lives, and there was nothing they could do. It was almost like they couldn't stop it. It was awkward because it was just coming out, and there was no way to restrain themselves in worship, right? I remember that, and maybe that's your experience, right? Maybe that's your experience as you're watching with us online, or you're coming into the building with us, whatever it is. Maybe that's your experience, and you're thinking to yourself, what is going on with these people? Hey, I get it. I get it. But no, it's because the truth that we sing, it's just inexpressible. We can't contain it. It's like a big grown man crying when he asks that beautiful woman to say, will you marry me, right? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about that kind of engagement, that kind of interaction. I love it. I love it. And as we start our discussion today, as we jump into God's word, I want to ask you one kind of big question. And the question is this, are you safe? Are you safe? Now think about that. Safety is just a natural concern in us. It's just, it's just ingrained in us. It's written in our DNA. Self-preservation, self-protection. Are you safe? Are you safe physically? Physically, are you safe? Are you worried about your health? Are, are you worried that you may be a victim of a crime? Are you living in an area that is safe? Are you living in an area where you're not concerned about the safety of your kids? Or, or maybe you're living uh, and taking care of your parents, and you're wondering, are they going to be safe? Are they going to be physically safe? Maybe emotionally are you safe? Relationally are you safe? Do you have the, the proper boundaries set up so someone can't hurt you emotionally anymore? They can't strike you with their Words? Are you safe? Are you, are you financially safe? Is your retirement nest egg kind of in jeopardy? Are you worried that your money is going to run out? Are you safe? We do a lot of things, a lot of things to ensure that we'll be safe. 
Physically, we wonder, maybe I need to watch what I'm eating. Maybe I need to exercise. I need to get on the treadmill. I need to go out and find a trail. I need to start running and hiking. I need to do things to keep that heart rate up. I need to to take care of myself. I need to watch what I eat. We do a lot of things to make sure that we're physically safe, that we're healthy. We get medical insurance to ensure our health is safe. We, We save. We plan. We budget we work to make sure that we're financially safe we keep our distance from people who are toxic to us we get out of relationships that are unhealthy we we try to set up proper boundaries to ensure that we're safe from those that could emotionally and relationally hurt us we would all love to be safe physically emotionally and financially but there's another area one that we often don't think about one that's just not intuitive, naturally, always at uh, the, the, the front of our mind. Are we spiritually safe? Are we spiritually safe? Do we know that our relationship with our Creator is on good terms? Are we worried that we'll fall out of the love of God? Are we worried that we'll lose our love for God? What can we do to ensure that that relationship will always be healthy, that relationship will always endure? Are we spiritually safe? This is the topic that Jesus is going to encounter in John chapter 10, where we are in the Gospel of John. We've been journeying through the Gospel of John. We're kind of on a slow walk with Jesus through the Gospel of John. And in this section section of John chapter 10, Jesus is going to talk about spiritual safety. And he's going to make a guarantee that he is the only one who can keep us spiritually safe. In fact, that leads to our big idea. So if you're only going to write down one thing, if you're only going to keep one note, put one thing in your phone, I want you to remember this sentence. Very simple sentence. Hopefully one that is kind of sticky that will keep with you at least for a week. And I think this summarizes the main idea of Jesus' teaching in John chapter 10. So the big idea this morning is this. Our spiritual safety is his priority. Our spiritual safety is his priority. Now, don't read that incorrectly on your screen or on your TV screen. Don't hear that incorrectly. Don't write it incorrectly. The big idea is not our safety is his priority. The big idea is our spiritual safety is his priority priority. It's true. We'd all love to have physical, emotional, financial security and safety. And those are great gifts that God can give us. But they are not guarantees. Which sounds disappointing. If we're honest, that doesn't sound like very good news. Where there's a greater concern a safety of greater importance than any of those things that I mentioned. And that is our spiritual safety. And that is Jesus' priority. And that is something that he guarantees, that he will keep us spiritually safe. And I think what you'll see at the end of our time together is that is the safety that you are most concerned about or you should be most concerned about. That's the greater need. It's not the physical, emotional, or financial. It's am I going to be spiritually safe? Is my soul safe? Is the love of God for me in jeopardy? Is there a threat that it will be diminished, that it will 
dissolve or is there certainty that I'll be spiritually safe? Let me show you this. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 22. John chapter 10, verse 22. Very interesting setting that Jesus is going to give this main teaching about spiritual safety. John chapter 10, look at verse 22. John chapter 10, verse 22. It says this. At this time, the feast of dedication took place in, or sorry, at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Just stop right here. What's up with all the detail? Why is John giving us so much detail about the setting of this conversation? Anytime you read the scriptures, and you see very specific details like this, it shouldn't just inform you that, hey, this is an eyewitness account. This is historically reliable. Why put so many factors in? We have the season. It's winter. We have the, the background of a festival. It's the Feast of Dedication. We know the exact location that Jesus is in. He's in the temple, not just in the temple, but in the colonnade of Solomon. Why are we given so many details? What is John doing here? Anytime you read the scriptures, this basic, basic principle is always true. Choice implies meaning. He chose these words specifically for a reason. Why? The backdrop here is so informative to the conversation about safety that Jesus is just going to have. If you're looking at the scriptures and you're thinking, okay, it's winter time, there's a festival in the winter, and it's called the Festival of Dedication or the Feast of Dedication. What is that? Now, maybe you're familiar with the Old Testament, and you're thinking to yourself of all the festivals that were commanded by Moses for the people to do. And as you're thinking through them, you're like, okay, where's this Feast of Dedication? Okay, and if you're struggling to recall it in your mind and find that Old Testament passage, don't worry. You're a good student of the Bible. It's not there. The Feast of Dedication is not an Old Testament feast. It's not one set up by Moses. In fact, at this time, it's about only 200 years old. It's relatively new. It's not in the pages of Scripture. What is this festival about? Well, about 200 years before this time right here in 167 B.C., there was a great threat to the people of God, a great threat to the city of Jerusalem, a great threat to the temple of God in Jerusalem. There was a man by the name of Antiochus IV, and he was the leader of the Seleucid Empire, and his job, what he felt was his obligation and authority and his desire, was to press Greek culture on everybody he ruled. So when he came to the Jewish people, he, he oppressed them and pushed on them Greek systems and told them, hey, hey this whole thing about the Sabbath, you've got to throw that away. This whole thing about circumcision, you can't do that anymore. In fact, I'm going to burn your Old Testament books. I'm going to burn the book of the law. And then he came into the temple and he did something that was incredibly sacrilegious. He took a pig, which was an unclean animal, and he sacrificed it on the altar at the temple. And then he forced the Jews to worship pagan idols. Well, this did not sit well with the people of God. 
did not sit well with the Jews. And one family, in, in especially the Maccabees, said, we're not doing this. So they retreated up to the mountains, and they would kind of attack, kind of a, a guerrilla warfare kind of mentality. And they kept attacking this great army. And finally, three years later, in 164 B.C., they took Jerusalem back. They rededicated the temple. They cleaned everything up. And that was called the Feast of Dedication from that moment on. You know this feast. You're aware of this feast. You see this feast advertised on your television. It's called Hanukkah. Hanukkah, that is the feast represented right here. It is Hanukkah. Now think about this for a moment, for the Jewish people and where they are. They're having this very uh, awesome party, a party that reminds them that God was faithful to clean out his temple, that God gave strength for the, the Maccabees to have a revolt and to push away the Greek oppressor, to give them freedom and liberty. What do they have now? A new oppressor, Rome. Now, the Romans are a little more favorable to their religion than Antiochus IV was, but they're not free. They're not free. They're not a nation state. They don't have control. So think about that in the back of your mind if you're a Jewish person. You are celebrating this, this political party that reminds you of freedom, that reminds you that God can keep us safe from our oppressor. God can protect us. And you're anticipating a time when Jewish independence will happen once again. It would be like us in America celebrating the 4th of July while we were under somebody else's reign. Imagine somebody taking over America and them having reign over us. We were under their dominance. And we still celebrated the 4th of July. Every firework you saw would remind you of independence, but would give you a longing for what? For independence. We have a context here, a background here of who is going to keep us safe from the oppressor? Who is going to protect us? And it is out of this context they ask Jesus a question, a very specific question. Look at the next verse. We're in John chapter 10. We're in verse 23. Or sorry, verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? Another way we could translate this is, How long will you plague us? Okay, you, get, you get a different feel when you use that kind of terminology. They're saying to us, Jesus, we're in agony, man. Like, we're having this party. The fireworks are going off. We're celebrating our independence that happened over 200 years ago. But now we're oppressed again. Here we are playing the same record as Jewish people. We now have somebody else reigning over us, and we want some liberty. It says that they gather around him. They encircle him, which already tells you something's going on. It almost feels like they're about to jump Jesus, right? They're about to get him in the gang or something. This sounds more like the start of a gang fight than a spiritual discussion, right, or a spiritual question, I mean, they're surrounding him, in, encircling him. He's right there in the middle, right? In the mush pot, if you will. Like, clearly, they're not being friendly to Jesus. They want something from Jesus. And they're asking him, how long are you making us wait? 
How long are you keeping us in suspense? We are at the edge of our seat, anticipating that somebody will help us. One of the members of the Maccabean family who led the revolt, Judas Maccabeus, he said that somebody would come, that we should be anticipating someone to give us true independence. Are you that guy? We're waiting. We're waiting. How long do you plague us, Jesus? Just tell us. Tell us what? What's their question? How long are you going to make us wait, Jesus? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Make it clear, Jesus. Are you the guy we're waiting for? Are you the Christ? That term means anointed one, the one set apart for a specific purpose. This was a huge theme in the Old Testament. And God made a promise to bring a person, a person who would act as a king, a liberator, who would be given the kingdom of God, who will restore the people to their place of favor in God's relationship to them. And so they're wondering, are you this guy? Are you going to come and protect us? Are you going to keep us safe? We want safety. Physical, religious, emotional, financial, national. Are you our protector? Are you going to keep us safe? Jesus, tell us plainly. And I honestly think this is a fair question. Because Jesus hasn't been necessarily clear. He hasn't, well, at least we could say, he hasn't given them the answer that they want. He's answered the question. But he has not given them the answer that they want. And here's why. And you know this. If you're a parent and you, you've got little ones, you know that you cannot give a simple answer to a complex question. You can't do that. It's unfair. Kids will come in and they'll ask you a question and they think, oh, a yes or a no is perfect. And you know it's not a yes or a no answer. So you don't give them a yes or a no answer because that would be inappropriate. That would lead them to the wrong conclusions. You know the answer is much more complex than that. You probably have experienced this even maybe having a conversation about your politics or a conversation about your financial kind of philosophy or a conversation about raising kids or your conversation really honestly about anything. And when you're engaging with somebody, somebody will try to set these little trap questions. And they'll ask you a question, and you know, yes and no is not fair. It's much bigger than that. I think Jesus knows this. Because if Jesus answers their question, yes, I'm the Christ, the promised one, they have all these assumptions in the back of their mind. They think, Jesus, you're going to kill the Romans. Jesus, you're going to come in, and you're going to wipe out these guys. And you're going to make us a free nation state once again. You're going to liberate us, and you are going to drink the blood of our enemies. So Jesus knows if I answer that question with a simple yes, clearly they're going to come to a conclusion that's not fair. But Jesus can't say no, because he is the Christ, right? His last name is Christ, Jesus Christ. That's a joke. It's not his last name. It's a title, right? But that's how we refer to it. Yes, he is the Christ. He is the promised one of the Old Testament, but he's going to bring in a different type of kingdom. And his job right now is to liberate people from their sin. And he will vanquish the enemy of his people when he comes again. But this coming is not about that. 
So he can't answer yes or no. He can't give a simple answer to a complex question that has all these other thoughts behind it. But does that mean Jesus gives no answer? Does that mean Jesus remains silent? No. Look at what Jesus says to them, his response to them. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you. What is he saying? You keep telling me, hey, make it plain, Jesus. Make it clear, Jesus. And what has Jesus said? What do you think I've been doing? I've answered your questions. Maybe not the way that you would like them, but I've answered them. And Jesus gives more. Jesus says, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. I have not only talked to you, but I've displayed my miraculous works before you. I've told you who I am. All right, let's just journey. Just go, go back in the beginning of the Gospel of John. Let's, let's just see a couple interactions that Jesus had with the Jews to see if Jesus is being fair here. In, in John chapter 3, we saw him have a conversation with a man by the name of Nicodemus. So he has been clear to the Jews right here in John chapter 3. He is very clear to one Jewish teacher. He says in John chapter 3 in verse 14, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is Jesus saying here? I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. And by my dying and rising, I'm going to grant eternal life. Life. What is Jesus saying there? I'm the Savior of the world. I'm the one you've been waiting for. You can go all the way back to Moses. What Moses did that the people would be freed from their plague, I'm going to do for the plague that is upon humanity. He says, I'm the Son of Man, which goes back to the prophet Daniel, the one who would come and receive an everlasting kingdom. I'm that guy. I am the Messiah. I am the one that you've waited for. Go to John chapter 5, one of the most... I would say, uh, heated discussions that Jesus has with the religious leaders. Jesus is incredibly clear about who he is. And speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience, Jesus tells them, I am doing the works of the Father. And, and look at this. Go to John chapter 5, verse 21. Look at the works that Jesus says he does. Verse 21 of John chapter 5. He says, For as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. What is he saying? You know one of the works that I do? It's resurrection. I can give life. Does that sound like a big thing? A big work? A large task? Something only divine power can do? Jesus is saying, I do that work. I can do that. Look what else Jesus says in verse 21. Sorry, verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. What is Jesus saying here? When we think of the works of God, we think of creation. We think of the ability to undo death, resurrection. We think of the one who has the moral authority and high ground to judge all the world. And Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm that guy. You want to know if I'm the Christ? You want to know if I'm a political rescuer. I'm more than that. I'm way more than you bargained for. Look at this interaction in John chapter 8 when Jesus makes it incredibly clear. He speaks to them and he answers their question. 
And in John chapter 8, verse 58, they realize the gravity and significance of his response to their question. They're wondering, Jesus, who you are? What, what is your identity? And Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what was their response? Stone him. Kill him. That's blasphemy. Why? Because he is calling down, calling down the divine name. I am. What is that? I'm Yahweh. This is the name that God chose for himself in the Old Testament. And he's saying, before Abraham was, I am. I'm older than Abraham. And Abraham lived thousands of years before Jesus was born on this earth. He's saying, I'm the pre-existent one, and I'm the also one that created everything. I'm God. So think about it. Has Jesus been plain? Has Jesus been clear? They're having this political party. We're waiting for somebody to get them Romans. We're waiting for somebody to liberate us from our oppressor. We're worried about our safety. We're worried about our protection. We're worried about our politics. Jesus, are you the, are you the guy? And Jesus says, guys, I've been telling you who I am, and you don't believe. And my works. We see Jesus perform miracles in Jerusalem on several occasions in the Gospel of John. So these guys have probably seen those miracles, or they at least have firsthand report of those miracles. Jesus has made it clear. And it's worked for his disciples. Peter, in John chapter 6, has already said that Jesus is the Holy One of God. So why don't these guys get it? How can they really come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you haven't made it plain yet? Why is that? It's because he's not the Savior they want. But he is the Savior that they need. He doesn't give them the safety that they want. But he gives them the safety that they need. Look at how Jesus continues his interaction. Go back again to John chapter 10. I know we've been kind of jumping around, and I appreciate all the paper cuts you're getting on your fingers if you didn't bring your phone. This is one of those times where you're like, man, I wish I just had my Bible on my phone. It'd be so much easier to swipe across and do those things. That's okay. God will heal your paper cuts. John chapter 10, we're going to jump back to where we are in verse 26. Jesus says, my works bear witness about me, but you do not believe now, here's one of the hardest verses in John's gospel to understand. Now, this isn't the main point of what Jesus is saying to us, but I can't ignore it because it's right there in the passage. So I want to unpack it for you just a little bit. Look at what Jesus says. You don't believe my works. You don't believe my words. Why? Verse 26. Because you are not among my sheep. Why is this hard? Think about what Jesus is saying here. This moment of unbelief right now, this moment that you have right now, that's happening right now, that you don't believe that I'm the one who can grant eternal life, or you don't see your need for a Savior. You're only thinking politically. You're not thinking spiritually. And the reason you have this difficulty, the reason you have this unbelief, the reason this moment has come where you don't trust me is because something has happened before this moment. The reason you don't believe now, that word is because, which means something happened before to cause this. You don't believe now because you are not my sheep. What has happened before? 
that has caused this moment of unbelief? Now, this is a complex question, which doesn't, therefore, need a simple answer. How would John answer that question? What has happened before that has brought now this moment of unbelief? I think John will answer two ways for us. Two ways. And he's going to keep both of these ways in balance. He's going to say, you guys haven't done something. And then he's going to say, and God hasn't done something. The reason you're in a moment of unbelief right now is because you haven't done something that you're responsible for. You've made a decision. And God has decided not to do something. Let me just show you this very simply. And then we'll continue on with the idea of safety. Go to John chapter 18. Let me show you how Jesus answers this question. You guys haven't done something. Why are you not my sheep? Why do you not find my words satisfying? Why has Peter believed but you don't believe? Why is John the gospel writer confident that if people read his gospel, they will come to believe? Why does the interaction here not seem to be working for these religious leaders? Why are they not his sheep? Why are they not buying? Why don't they follow Jesus' voice? Why is there unbelief? John chapter 18, verse 37. Very interesting words from Jesus right before he's crucified. This is at his trial. This is what Jesus says. And then Pilate said to him, So are you a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Here's the sentence of great importance to us. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is he saying there? If you love truth, if you're seeking after truth, if you are of truth, then what will happen? What will be a byproduct of your desire to find truth? If your heart is really, I got to find truth. I got to find reality. I got to find what answers all the questions. If you truly desire truth, what are you going to find? Jesus' voice will be satisfying. So what do we conclude from that? Do these guys want truth? No. They don't want truth. They want political safety. They have a political agenda. They're so prideful, they don't see their need for a spiritual savior. They're not seeking truth. They're seeking power. And if you're seeking power, you won't find Jesus' words very convincing. And that's what's happening here. But again, we have to be balanced. John's going to answer this question two ways. Why are they not his sheep? It's because something that these guys have decided, but there's something else. John chapter 6, verse 44. Something God has not done. John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Is Jesus saying there? Why aren't you coming? It's because the Father is not drawing. The Father has not decided to change your mind, to turn the course, to make you a true pursuer of truth. Now, Jesus in John chapter 10 is not trying to unpack how do we balance these. I think John chapter 6 was much more that discussion. But in John chapter 10, he does tell them, you don't believe because something happened before this moment. And that something that has happened is God has not moved on your heart, 
And your heart is that you would not seek truth. So now we're here, and you're not my sheep. You're not responding, and I'm not going to keep you safe. And this is the rest of what Jesus talks about. Jesus now is going to unpack, let me tell you the safety that I do provide. If I'm not the one that would free you from the Roman oppressor, I'm not the hope that the Maccabees had that somebody would come and give Jewish independence. If I'm not your political savior, then what kind of safety do I provide? And Jesus unpacks what kind of safety he provides to his sheep in John chapter 10. So let's go back to that. John chapter 10. Jesus says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. And then Jesus switches and says, now let's talk about my sheep. And let's talk about what would I give them. Look at these words in verse 27. My sheep, they hear my voice. Jesus has talked about this all throughout John chapter 10, that when he calls, the sheep know him. They say, that's my shepherd. Jesus has talked about how familiar he is with the sheep. He says, I know them by name. I call you by name. And when I call your name, you know my voice. It resonates with you. It's exactly what you're looking for. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, which means I love them. And then he says, and they follow me. And then what does Jesus give? This is where Jesus kind of breaks the analogy. He's jumped back to the very familiar analogy of sheep and shepherd that we've seen throughout John chapter 10. Jesus is describing the calling of the sheep and the following of the sheep. Jesus is talking about kind of that first interaction in the morning that sheep would have with the village shepherd, that Jesus would go door to door, or the shepherd would go door to door and he would knock, and the homeowner would say, yes, you can have my two, my three sheep, and the shepherd would call, and the two or three sheep would come. And then he would go to the next door and he would knock, and the homeowner would say, oh, I know you. You're the town shepherd. Yes, you could have my sheep, and, and, and the shepherd will call. And then the, all these sheep are being gathered. That's what Jesus is describing here. But then he breaks the analogy. Because the next step for the shepherd would say, let's go to the open country and let's graze. Right? Let me feed you. Let me provide for you. But look at what Jesus does. He breaks the analogy. Instead of talking about grass now and grazing in the open country, what does Jesus give his sheep? What provision does he provide? Jesus says, they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Jesus described, you are going to graze in the open country of eternal life. That's what I provide. Now Jesus kind of switches back. He switches back, and he kind of goes back to that shepherd analogy. Because in the open country, there was still danger. Once those sheep would leave the courtyard of their families and they were out in the open country, the shepherd had a lot of sheep now to manage, a lot of of, of sheep to keep safe. He was worried about them. And at night what he would do is he would bring them into this kind of uh, crude structure and he would bring them all in. There would be she- several sheep, upwards of a hundred sheep that he would take from all the village families. And he would put them in this pen. And then they, he would lay by the door and he would make sure that nobody came in. And Jesus has been talking about this threat all through John 10. All through John 10, Jesus talked about this. If you just look down at your Bible in verse 1, he talks about there is a threat for the sheep. It's the thieves 
and the robbers, those who would take the sheep, profit from the sheep. In verse 5, he says that they're strangers, strangers who try to hurt the sheep. In verse 10, he says that there are murderers seeking to take the life of the sheep. In verse 12, he says there's a wolf who's out there to kill the sheep. There is danger for the sheep. They are not safe. And look what Jesus says. In the open country of eternal life, grazing in eternal life, are you safe? Are you safe? Well, the thieves, robbers, strangers, murderers, and wolves take your life. Are you in danger of them? And what does Jesus say? He says, look at how good of a shepherd I am. Jesus says, I give to them eternal life. They will never perish. Listen to this. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. You can't get to my sheep. It's like Jesus saying, over my dead body, but he reverses it. He says, over your dead body. Right? You're not getting in. These sheep are mine. Oh, we're in the open country. We're experiencing, oh, just the richness of eternal life. And it may look like, oh, there's some danger. There may look like there may be a stranger, a robber, an intruder, a murderer, and a wolf. And Jesus is saying, nobody gets into this pen. No wolf comes in. No enemy comes in. You are safe. No one can snatch you out of his hand. How, how wonderful is that? And then Jesus, I'm, maybe, maybe Jesus does, isn't sure how uh, persuasive he has made this point. So he ups the ante. He says, not only is this my priority, your spiritual safety, but it's my father's. Just in case you don't think I'm up for the job, let me tell you, there are two members of the Trinity now keeping you safe. Now, if you expand in the, Old Test or the New Testament, we see there are three members of the Trinity, all the members of the Trinity, that are keeping us safe in good pasture, keeping us from the wolves, robbers, murderers, and strangers. Look what Jesus says in verse 29. My father who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Just in case I'm not enough, me and Dad have this priority. No one gets out. It's like my hand is here, the Father's hand is here, and we put our hands around you. No one can snatch you out of this hand. You are kept safe. And to say that you're not is to say what? The son has failed. The father has failed. To say that a wolf can come in, a stranger, a robber can come in, is to say what? God has failed. Look at this. Look at how Jesus shows that this is his priority. John chapter 6. Go back again. John chapter 6. I know you've been moving. Okay, use the other finger that's not cut. Okay? Okay. John chapter 6, look at verse 38. Sorry, verse 37. And, and just think of the words of John 10. I mean, they're just, it's like Jesus is very consistent in his teaching. John chapter 6, verse 37. 
All that the Father gives me, these are my sheep, the ones he's drawing. All that the Father gives me, they, look at the words, will come to me. It's undeniable. Jesus is not forecasting, making a guess. He's not a, 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 a spiritual weatherman here. Well, it may rain. 70% chance that the sheep are going to come. What does Jesus say? They will come. And whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. I'm not pushing you out of the pen. You come. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Listen to that. How far does he take it? All the way to the last day. What does that mean? That means from calling to raising, you make it. You make it. Not calling and then, uh-oh, the middle gets a little foggy here. No, from calling to raising, from start to finish, from the first lap to the last lap, all the way through, the one who began a good work in you will bring it to the day of completion. Eternal life means eternal. It doesn't mean for a moment, for a portion, for a time. It means forever. And Jesus is not a failure. You are safe. Jesus concludes and says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Me and him are on the same page. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't know how to express to you the importance of this idea. I don't have enough words in my vocabulary, enough energy and passion in my voice to persuade you of how pivotal this is in your spiritual life. I don't. Hopefully the word of God is weighty enough. Hopefully the words of Jesus are weighty enough. But brothers and sisters in Christ, you are safe. Now, you may lose your retirement nest egg. You may lose your 20-year marriage. You may get hurt. There is harm out there. There is danger out there. There are threats out there that are very real. And it is a gift of God that he keeps us physically safe, emotionally safe, financially safe. But friend, it's no guarantee. God is benevolent, and he is kind, and he, he loves us in a great way, and he asks us to pray for all of those arenas, but he makes no guarantee that we won't experience hardship, that times won't get tough, that there won't be suffering. You can't have the leader of your religion die on a cross and think you're guaranteed an easy life. If, we don't, if Christ doesn't get comfort guaranteed, then his followers don't get comfort Guaranteed. Why else would Jesus say, if you want to follow me, take up your cross? That's not an idea of jewelry. That's an instrument of death. Take up what can kill you, destroy you, and come follow me. I know, just personally, this week, a lot of conversations with other pastors. A lot of reading of other Christian leaders. And maybe you've seen it in the news yourself. But personally, I've applied this idea to my life this week, this way. And talking with pastors is a big concern 
that some legislation in our nation may snatch away our religious liberty. And like I said, there's no guarantees that your happiness won't be snatched away. That your financial security won't be snatched away. That your emotional health won't be snatched away. There's no guarantee. And I think right now, and I'm convinced, there's a true danger that our spiritual liberty in America has the potential of being snatched away. It's right there on the doorstep right now. There's a piece of legislation hundreds of pages long with a very small title, very small title, that sounds really great. The Equality Act. Well, if I'm only buying three words, I'll buy those. I like those. I like equality. I'm for that. I like to act out of equality. I like that. But just like when you try to summarize hundreds of pages in three words, you know those words don't fully give you all the details. And like my grandfather used to say, the devil is in the details. And there's very much a real sense that this legislation, if passed through the Senate, already made it through the House, will make a devastating blow to Christian education, Christian universities, Christian high schools, Christian private schools, Christian adoption agencies, Christians really organizations. There are some are forecasting that this could change how churches operate according to the scriptures. It's very much a real sense things can get harder. Things can get tougher. Should we panic? Are we safe? No, we shouldn't panic. Yes, we are safe. We're safe. No thief, no robber, no stranger, no murderer, no wolf can ever take my soul. You can pass whatever piece of legislation you want. I'm okay. I'm safe. I want to give you just one thing, one thing to do this week that I think may change your perspective. They may bring down your blood pressure. You can have your doctor write me a note of thanks. But when you read an article or you watch the news, before you do it, before they get to breaking news, right, or before you read that article or, or read that tweet or post or whatever it is, just do this, just three simple words. Say this, I am safe. I am safe. Then go ahead and read. And let me tell you, I think that will honestly change your perspective. I think that will change your emotional health. I think that will change your outlook. Why? Because it is true. You are safe. If Jesus Christ is your shepherd, you're safe. Now, if he's not your shepherd... If he's not your shepherd, you're not safe. You may be financially safe, physically safe. You may feel emotionally safe. But spiritually, you're not safe. There's a threat out there that you are moving closer and closer to. There's a danger out there that you're getting closer and closer to turning that corner. And that threat and that danger may surprise you who it is. 
It's not the devil. He's not your greatest threat. He's not the greatest danger. The greatest threat, the greatest danger to you spiritually is the justice of God. We will all have to face it. And we either will face it and we will feel the protection of our shepherd and say, I am safe from my sin and the consequence of that sin. Or we will face the justice of God and we will fall under the wrath of God. It's very true to say you need to be saved from God, by God. And by his grace, you can be saved from his justice. There is an account. For all the deeds that you've done that you believe nobody has seen. All the wrongs that you have committed, whether in your mind or in your heart, as motives or intent, as daydreams or fantasies, the things you think you can keep from your spouse, your closest friend, the deeds that you thought that nobody saw, the shortcuts you did at the job, the numbers that you didn't count correctly on your tax form, all of those things are being counted. And they are counting against you. And they've created a burden, a spiritual debt so large you can't pay it off. And the justice of God is much more demanding than the bill collectors of MasterCard, Visa, and American Express. And the debt is devastating, soul-crushing. But friend, there's somebody who's got enough money to pay off your debt. And that is the one who sacrificed his son, Jesus Christ that you can sing the songs that we sang this morning. My debt is paid. It is paid in full. And I want that so bad for you, for you to know it, to be freed from it. Oh, friend, I have debt, big debt, big sins, shameful sins, sins I'm guilty of, but I have been redeemed, and I will not fall under the judgment of God. Because Christ fell under it and rose again. And says, Paul, I will raise you up again. If you not, have not found the grace of God this morning, I pray that you will find it. And you can find it right here in these words in John chapter 10. Pray that he will be your good shepherd and that he will forgive your sins. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you that we our Savior. Oh, it feels so good to say those words. I am safe. Paul is safe. But why am I safe? I'm safe because I have a great shepherd who can fight the wolf, who can fight the robber, who can fight the stranger, who has slayed the monster in me. Oh, Father, Thank you for sending your son to die and rise again. You have given us great care. You have shown us great love. You have granted us great mercy. And Father, I want so badly for everybody who's watching this, hearing this, seeing this, or whatever, to know the grace that you provide, that we can be saved from you, by you. Who can save us from you but you? Only your act of grace can free us from your justice. And it is just that you would condemn us. But you have decided to give us an option to be your sheep and to know your forgiveness.
Father, I pray that those that don't yet know you would come to know you today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.